Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of 1 Peter 5. Your tax-deductible contributions enable us to continue our work to restore Catholic culture and rebuild Catholic tradition. Make a real difference in the church. Go to 1peter5.com forward slash donate today. You're listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the family of David. To be enrolled with Mary, his espoused wife, who was with child. And it came to pass that when they were there, her days were accomplished, that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him up in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were, in the same country, shepherds watching and keeping the night watches over their flock. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the brightness of God shone round about them, and they feared with a great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all the people. For this day is born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, in the city of David. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the infant wrapped in swaddling clothes, and laid in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. This scene, taken from the second chapter of Luke's Gospel, is almost astonishing in the way it understates the most pivotal moment in history. Just a few short lines, the scant details of an almost unremarkable-sounding scene, reveal to us an event that we cannot help but believe should have arrived with blinding light and peals of thunder. That tiny boy, lying in the straw-lined feeding trough for Bethlehemian livestock, was begotten before the world was made. One cannot help but think of Christ when reading of God's wisdom in the book of Proverbs. I was set up from eternity and of old before the earth was made. The depths were not as yet, and I was already conceived. Neither had the fountains of waters as yet sprung out. The mountains, with their huge bulk, had not as yet been established. Before the hills I was brought forth. He had not yet made the earth, nor the rivers, nor the poles of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was present when, with a certain law and compass, he enclosed the depths, when he established the sky above and poised the fountains of waters, 
when he compassed the sea with its bounds, and set a law to the waters that they should not pass their limits, when he balanced the foundations of the earth, I was with him, forming all things, and was delighted every day, playing before him at all times, playing in the world, and my delights were to be with the children of men. The first announcement of the coming of Christ into the world arrives at almost the very beginning of divine revelation. Adam and Eve seem to be no sooner created than they fall before the seduction of the serpent, wishing to themselves be like gods. They are chastised for their sin and cast out. Their preternatural gifts are taken from them, and they are introduced to the reality of suffering. But there is a consolation, an announcement that the theologians refer to as the Proto-Evangelion, the first appearance of the good news in salvation history. I will put enmities between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed, she shall crush thy head, and thou shall lie in wait for her heel. In the words of the Felix Culpa, O happy fault that merited such a Redeemer. Christmas is both a beginning and an ending. It is the event which crowns the opening of the liturgical year, while it closes the twelve calendar months that came before it. Christmas was also a beginning and an ending for the ancient world into which our Lord was born. The life of Christ, who came not to bring peace, but the sword, would mark an irrevocable turning point in history. In a few short centuries, the world would see the might of pagan Rome transformed by conversion into what would become the glory of Catholic Christendom, the crowning achievement of human civilization. But the moment of Christ's incarnation came at a moment that was no accident, no coincidence. Instead, it was a moment of great geopolitical poignancy, a confluence of events steered for millennia by the divine hand. The ancient Roman martyrology gives us a poetic account of the state of the world and how it had come to be at the moment the child Jesus was born at Bethlehem. It reads... The 25th day of December, in the 5,199th year of the creation of the world, from the time when God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, the 2,957th year after the flood, the 2,015th year from the birth of Abraham, the 1,510th year from Moses and the going forth of the people of Israel from Egypt, the 1,032nd year from David's being anointed king, in the 65th week according to the prophecy of Daniel, in the 194th Olympiad, the 752nd year from the foundation of the city of Rome, the 42nd year, of the reign of Octavian Augustus, the whole world being at peace, in the sixth 
age of the world. Jesus Christ, the eternal God and Son of the Eternal Father, desiring to sanctify the world by his most merciful coming, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, and nine months having passed since his conception, was born in Bethlehem of Judea, of the Virgin Mary, being made flesh. That first Christmas was, more significantly, a beginning and an ending for mankind, an end to the era of eternal death, the curse of Adam's sin, a beginning of the era of the redemption purchased by the new Adam, by the passion, death, and resurrection of the Logos, the uncreated Son of God, made flesh through the Virgin Mary. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There is a quote often attributed to C.S. Lewis that says, The birth of Christ is the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing the whole story has been about. Whether or not the quote is authentic, the sentiment it expresses is true. J.R.R. Tolkien was known to have coined the word eucatastrophe. He explained this word to mean this, quote, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears, which I argued it is the highest function of fairy stories to produce. And I was there led to the view that it produces its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. Your whole nature chained in material cause and effect. The chain of death feels a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint has suddenly snapped back. End quote. In his essay on fairy stories, Tolkien says that the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history, the resurrection, the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This history, he says, begins and ends in joy. And there is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true. It is a tale, the belief about which we have very little choice in. We mustn't believe it to be only partly true. It is either entirely true in all of its grandeur, in awe-inspiring magnificence, or it is a total lie. Returning to Lewis in his magnificent Apologia for Christ as the true Son of God, the book Mere Christianity, we see why this is so. Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is the great mystery of our faith, that God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. Ours is a God who created the stars and the planets and the vast reaches of space, who formed all the many splendid creatures of the earth, and who shaped man and woman from its very soil. And when we threw the great and incomprehensible gifts he had given to us away, incurring the punishment of death, he squeezed his omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent being into the tiny body of a baby boy, not just wearing our human nature, but infusing it with the divine through the hypostatic union and elevating our humanity over and above even our preternatural perfections forever lost by our first parents in Eden. His life existed as a prelude to his death, his death as a necessary forerunner to his resurrection. He accomplished in 33 years what countless thousands of years of human history could not, the opportunity for each and every one of us to attain eternal salvation. Christ's birth is a gift so gratuitous that it is very nearly absurd. The precious gifts brought to him by the Magi paled in comparison, but they nonetheless served a symbolic purpose that has not been lost on Christians over the many centuries since that first epiphany. Gold, a gift fit for a king and one that would last for eternity. Frankincense, which was befitting of Christ's priesthood. Myrrh, which foreshadowed his coming death and sleep in the tomb. We, too, give gifts on Christmas, the joy of giving truly the greater than receiving. G.K. Chesterton observed the value of such exchanges and even the tradition of letting our children believe in the miraculous figure of Santa Claus. He wrote, what has happened to me has been the very reverse of what appears to be the experience of most of my friends. Instead of dwindling to a point, Santa Claus has grown larger and larger in my life until he fills almost the whole of it. It happened in this way. As a child, I was faced with a phenomenon requiring explanation. I hung up at the end of my bed an empty stocking, which in the morning became a full stocking. I had done nothing to produce the things that filled it. I had not worked for them, or made them, or helped to make them. I had not even been good, far from it. And the explanation was that a certain being whom people called Santa Claus was benevolently disposed towards me. Of course, most people who talk about these things get into a state of some mental confusion by attaching tremendous importance to the name of the entity. We called him Santa Claus because everyone called him Santa Claus, but the name of a god is a mere human label. His real name may have been Williams, it may have been the Archangel Uriel. 
what we believed was that a certain benevolent agency did give us those toys for nothing. And as I say, I believe it still. I have merely extended the idea. Then I only wondered who put the toys in the stocking. Now I wonder who put the stocking by the bed and the bed in the room and the room in the house and the house on the planet and the great planet in the void. Once I only thanked Santa Claus for a few dolls and crackers. Now I thank him for stars and street faces and wine and the great sea. Once I thought it delightful and astonishing to find a present so big that it only went halfway into the stocking. Now I am delighted and astonished every morning to find a present so big that it takes two stockings to hold it and then leaves a great deal outside. It is the large and preposterous present of myself, as to the origin of which I can afford no suggestion except that Santa Claus gave it to me in a fit of peculiarly fantastic goodwill. Santa Claus is, in a mythical sense, a type of Christ, who gives us all good things through his great benevolence, and not due to any particular worthiness of our own. Like the children of song, we must be good for goodness' sake. We must strive in virtue and do all that we can to merit the great gift of our redemption. But we are always aware, like the bright-eyed little ones staring at an unexpected overabundance of wrapped packages under the lights of the tree on Christmas morning, that the present we have received by means of Christ's incarnation, passion, and death is more than even our best behavior could have ever deserved. The intruit of the Christmas Mass at dawn reaches back to the prophecy of Isaiah to describe our incomparable gift. A light shall shine upon us this day, for the Lord is born to us, and he shall be called Wonderful, God, the Prince of Peace, the Father of the world to come, of whose reign there shall be no end. The Lord hath reigned. He is clothed with beauty. The Lord is clothed with strength and hath girded himself. The church, in her wisdom, reminds us again and again of this most august feast of our Lord's nativity. She does this at the conclusion of every Mass as the last gospel is read. He was in the world, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave them the power to become the sons of God. To them that believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt amongst us. And we saw his glory, the glory, as it were, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. From all of us here at 1 Peter 5, to all of you, we wish the most 
grace-filled, Merry Christmas, and all of God's abundant blessings. We'll see you next year.